Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. We began chapter 10 uh, just before Easter, and now we're returning to that. And Lord willing, we will finish the chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 7. As you're turning, a welcome to those who might be watching live uh, on the internet. Uh, We encourage you and welcome you to come here and join us in person. Uh, And may the Lord bless uh, the preaching, hearing, and believing of his holy word. I'll read the text to you from God's word, the Bible, beginning in verse 7. As Paul is speaking to these Corinthians, he sends out this uh, corrective. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For if, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Thus far we read in the word of God. Amen. Amen. We have to remember in the the context of this letter, not just the second letter, but at least the third letter to these people in Corinth, letters to the church Paul planted, he sends correctives for the behavior, even among those in the gathered church, was often inappropriate and wrong. We do well to remember that that this epistle addressed to the professing people of God has much to say about correcting our ways and methods. You see, in Corinth, of, of all places, Corinth was the epitome of how worldliness had crept into the church. It was incipient worldliness in Corinth, and it was coloring how they did ministry, how they assessed ministry and assessed others, And it led to them misjudging the Apostle Paul and offending God. 
that worldly way of thinking, that worldly way of measuring and commending and competing and comparing. It's a good thing we're past all of that in the 21st century. Hardly. We do it oh so much. Our culture does it all the time. And I'm afraid that Christians even participate in some of these comparisons and self-congratulations and criticisms. And on social media blogs and on YouTube and in all these forums, we have seen many a Christian uh, gather, perhaps in small groups, to become a self-appointed Sanhedrin. To accuse, to judge, to write off and dismiss. To latch on to something and undermine gospel ministry somewhere else or in someone else. Sure, there are those people that do that professionally and pointedly and problematically. But is it possible that we can fall into those same patterns? Do we need to hear this warning about using worldly measures and comparisons to exalt ourselves and put others down? That's part of what's happening here in this text. May it not be happening in us and among us. It matters how you serve the Lord and how you view the service of others. Derek Prime said, when others take a different and sometimes opposite view to ourselves, we should not immediately question their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make ourselves judge and jury. Today, as God's word is opened to each of us, may the Lord lead us to a right comprehension that we would avoid the voice of self-exaltation, that we would hear the rational and spiritual correctives Paul holds out to us. This is a letter to the church for the health of the church and for the sake of the glory of the gospel. The first thing we need to take up is this voice of self-exaltation that appears here. Uh, we have one exact quote Paul gives us of what people were saying about him. But that voice is appearing throughout the passage. So let's gather it together from these various verses and hear what this voice is saying. And hopefully it's not a voice that comes out of our mouths. <clears throat> The voice of self-exaltation says things like, I am Christ's, but I'm not so sure about you. Isn't that how it opens? In verse 7, as Paul's uh, addressing them, he says, look what is before your eyes. And we'll come back to that imperative. He says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ's. Okay, someone in Corinth, probably the opponent of Paul here had said, you know, I am a genuine Christian. I'm not so sure about someone else. I am of Christ. And we know there was a party spirit at work in Corinth. But this is something particular, and we'll unfold it a little bit further. There's a voice sounding in the background that Paul is correcting. Paul hears it. He says, okay, if anyone is so confident that he is in Christ, and perhaps he alone Well, let him remember himself that just as he is Christ, so 
also are we. I think Paul has a a view of this smug overconfidence that was not uncommon in Corinth. And and where had it come from? Well, it came from a sense of their own conversion experience. It came from a sense of their importance, perhaps because of their gifts. That's issues. Those are issues addressed in 1 Corinthians. You know, if you've had a dramatic conversion story... That doesn't make you more of a Christian than the the simple little child who comes to faith in a Christian home and and never lived the wicked life of the world. Come on. This voice that says, I am Christ's, and implies perhaps we're not. Perhaps this voice had, had come to this smug overconfidence based on some selective observation. Um, oh, that person can't explain theology as well as I can. Or this person, you know, we, we begin to make those judgments. Either way, this first and clear voice that Paul addresses should not be used. Do not use the voice of shameful self-exaltation. There's another voice at work here, and it might say something like this. I know quality ministry when I see it, but so-and-so doesn't measure up. What did they say in verse 10 about the Apostle Paul? They say. He's talking about some particular opponent. We don't know the name or the size of these opponents at Corinth. So Paul just kindly speaks generally. They say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They're writing that about the Apostle Paul. Wow. There is self-exaltation in that voice that says, I can measure and assess ministries and you're not cutting it. We don't know exactly what Paul's bodily presence looked like. There are no photographs. And the paintings you might see of the Apostle Paul are probably from the Middle Ages or, or perhaps uh, medieval period art. We don't have anything that goes back. There is one ancient description at least 100 years removed. And it's in a, um, I, would, I think it was a secular source that describes Paul in an unflattering way. Short and knobby knees and... It it may not even be historically accurate. So we don't know what he looked like. We do do know he had a thorn in his flesh, and there's some comment about his eyes. Perhaps he had an issue. But these Corinthians had latched on to something about his presence being deficient. His bodily presence is weak. You know, it's not like Dwayne Johnson, the rock, In the pulpit. And then they attack his voice. His speech is of no account. Come on. The things that Paul could say eloquently in in his preaching, at least what we see of it in the scriptures with the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is fantastic. But they they had their own measures. Where do their measures come from? You have to remember, Corinth is, is the epitome of Greek culture 
And the Greeks had someone, for instance, here's an example, an ancient orator, Demosthenes, that uh, little cadence in his name is hard to say, you can practice at home, Demosthenes. When he was born, he's, he's one of the most famous orators of Greece. When he was born, he was of poor constitution and yeah, he couldn't speak very clearly. But he worked on that for years, bodily training and speech training. And the historical record says that Demosthenes often put pebbles in his mouth and still tried to articulate his speeches. And he did that even while going uphill that his body might gain strength. He would develop his lungs and the muscles of his mouth and face so that he could speak with power and eloquence. And it goes on and on. That's what the Greek culture sought out and admired. Someone with a presence and power, charisma. No Greek captured by that culture would appreciate the Apostle Paul. He didn't use those eloquent rhetorical uh, embellishments in his speech. And it wasn't as much about the messenger as much as the message and pointing to Christ. In his weakness, remember Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. He wanted people to know that the power that could change their lives was not in him, but it was in the gospel. is in the truth of the information he would convey. For the Greeks, they enjoyed the show as much as the content. As Paul Barnett said, in their eyes, Paul was a disappointment wherever he was. So here, there's a reminder that we cannot use the voice of our culture's creeping influence. We cannot just use the cultural norms and standards to assess a ministry, a servant of Christ, a fellow believer. There's an interesting thing here in verse 10 and verse 11 Let's read the verses before we talk about this next voice. Uh, In verse 10, they say his letters, and we read that. Verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. They they acknowledge that his letters were a little intimidating. They, they, They could read what you and I can read, and it makes us nervous. You know, there was in 1 Corinthians that man who was in in an incestuous relationship. They said, kick him out of the church, hand him over to Satan. Ooh, okay, that's taking sin in the church pretty seriously. Some of the things Paul wrote were very sobering. But, you know, he's not here. And when he's here, he doesn't talk like that. So they began to find a room to say something like, I'm not really worried about the consequences. I'm not really worried about these epistles and the threats and their teachings. Some of us are still old enough to remember the Mad Magazine. What was it, Alfred E. Newman or some such character name with the big ears. Uh, what, me worry? Uh, it's a dangerous philosophy because you will find out that we need to be concerned about the present and the future. We need to understand that there are consequences to our thinking and actions or inactions. It seems to me that there's this voice here 
They're not understanding this. So Paul says in verse 11, let such a person understand. Don't don't be thinking that when I come, there aren't going to be consequences or that the tune is going to change or my position about sin in the church is any different. Let a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Perhaps they'd forgotten the Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Wonderful reference. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Yeah, those letters, they, they, they kind of make me nervous. But hey, when Paul comes, accountability is going to be something else. You know, we'll, we'll see later on. And, you know, some people, whether they're churchgoers or not, some people read the Bible and say, yeah, there's, there's some scary stuff in there. It talks about hell. It talks about Jesus as a judge separating the sheep from the goats. But, you know, I, I don't feel, I, I'm not real nervous about that future or those consequences. That's the, that's the thinking that can creep in. And my friends here today, we know what the Bible tells us to do. And how the Bible says how we should do those things. Don't shirk it off and say, "Eh, yeah, I know, but. The voice that says I'm not worried about obedience, I'm not worried about accountability, I'm not worried about consequences, is dangerous. It's the voice of careless, foolish independence. It's a voice of autonomy, incipient autonomy welling up that you are not going to take the word of God, the ambassadors of God, the preaching of God's word seriously. And we need to take it seriously. Paul wrote this to the church, to the church in Corinth and God has it for us as well. There's a fourth point here, and a fourth voice here that really needs to be identified. This voice of self-exaltation, as I'm calling it. Uh, It's this voice that says, well, I'm doing as well as my friends. I'm doing the same that everybody else is doing. In fact, I'm doing a little better than these guys, so I must be okay. That voice that is measuring yourself by others to instead of by God's standards or by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes out of uh, verse 12, as Paul's writing in this section. Verse 12, Paul's defending himself, and he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. There's that thing again. Someone who claims to be a Christian, instead of living according to the precepts of God's word and striving after holiness and Christ-likeness, they're saying, well, you know, everybody's doing this. I'm no different than him or her. Nobody else at church is doing this or that. Come on, I'm fine. Comparing yourself with others. When you use that, 
There's a bit of pride in that. And there's a bit of self-exaltation because you are choosing the standards and the measures. And and let me not just yell at you. Let me look at myself. I can easily uh, sit in church and the preacher might be struggling and whether I'm on vacation or traveling or at a conference, I would say, boy, you know, he's just not putting that together right. You know, I can preach a little bit better than that. So my preaching's good. My ministry's good. I measure up. Well, we usually pull out those comparisons when we have some control over who's the person side by side. Uh, You don't find me comparing myself to Billy Graham, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I wouldn't do well. But when Christians get some sense of our worth, our righteousness, our progress, our spiritual well-being by comparisons, that's dangerous. Look at who you are in Christ. We'll get to that solution. But here, beware the voice of prideful comparison. And let me take you to scripture to double down on this because I think this is the most common means of self-exaltation today. That we compare ourselves with other Christians. That we compare our situation and our progress with someone of our choosing. And we dodge perhaps biblical calls to obey or do better. Jesus gave a parable in Luke chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. I think you'll understand the parable. It begins that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Ding! Right? Oh, here's a parable that goes right along with 2 Corinthians chapter 10. People in Corinth were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and they were holding Paul in contempt And they had that sinful mindset. Oh, if I were a visiting pastor, I might preach on this parable. They should know it. The Lord's parable begins in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple, went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh my. Where do comparisons get us? I hope no one here feels good about themselves by stepping up on the backs of others. Or living to say, oh, look, there, that person slipped up. I I do better than that. You can hear the voice in the parable of this uh, Pharisee. He, He knows the law and he says, I thank you, I'm not like those people. He doesn't seem to recognize his own sin. His pride. 
his pompousness. It's the publican, the one who knows he's a sinner. He doesn't measure up to God's law and all he says, God, be merciful to me. He's not even looking at the Pharisee. He's just looking at his own heart. Jesus gave many other teachings that could come to mind here. He says, before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, deal with the log in your own. And and my friends, let me come back. Let me circle back. God's word is written to the church. To us. This isn't just a history lesson. Boy, those Corinthians were messed up. This happens today. Believe me. And all of us need to hear God's word afresh. And submit to it. And humble ourselves. Not measuring against one another. So these, these are the four voices, at least I see here in our text, 2 Corinthians 10, this voice of exaltation that had set itself up against the Apostle Paul. It becomes a model, a picture for us and dangers we must avoid. So Paul is correcting that. Let's just briefly look at the ways he corrects that. And the title here is to, that we would receive rational and spiritual correction. I'm not sure the last time you heard the word rational in a sermon, but just a reminder. Paul, as he pushes back on these critics at Corinth, he uses his mind. He calls them to think. He calls them to assemble the truth and let that speak for itself. Christianity isn't a feel-good religion. It's a religion of the heart and mind, yes. But together, truth will carry the day. The truth will set you free. The gospel truth and the truth about how God works in us. And and so the the first corrective comes with the very first word in verse 7, this imperative that starts the section. He says, look. It's an imperative. It's a command. Look. He's not just saying, uh, hey, listen up to me. No, he's telling them to look. What is before your eyes? So that begs the question of a Bible student today. I hope you're thinking, what were they supposed to look at? What is before your eyes? Well, he's writing to the Christians in Corinth. The letter probably was read either at the elders meeting and then at the whole church service. And he says, look. And so maybe they paused reading the letter and looked around. What are they going to see? They're going to see the Corinthian church. They're going to see a gathering of Christians that didn't exist a few years ago before Paul came. Where did all these people come from? How about him? How about her? How about them? And even one of those, they're all converted. They're all following Christ. Paul says, look around. Where did they all come from? Look at the facts and the fruit of the gospel and my ministry of which you're a part. Take a look. That's one of the first correctives, is to see what God is doing. To see here. Imagine standing, as I did just a few weeks back at a wedding, at the Botanical Gardens in Savannah, Georgia. Lovely place. Although we were a little early, there weren't a lot of blooms, but it was a beautiful place, all laid out. They had a bamboo section, and they had a water section, and they had lots of other growth and trellises. You know what these types of gardens look like? They're all laid out. And there are paths, and you stay on the path, 
And you can see that the, the lifetime of design is trees in established places are, are trimmed and growing properly. And there's usually symmetry and beauty in a botanical garden. Well, if you're standing in the midst of that, you, if your eyes are open, you cannot help but see the fruit of design and labor. That garden didn't grow that way all on its own. You can stop in a national park and see nature on its own, per se. But in such a garden, you're constantly confronted with the reality that someone planned this. Someone knew how far apart to space those things. And, oh, look, the taller things are in the back. And the God has done a beautiful thing here in the church, like a garden. Paul says, look at the the facts and the fruit, the realities in front of you. And Paul says, the facts will bear me out. Paul just doesn't pull ranks. Okay, I'm an apostle. You guys quiet down. Enough of that nonsense. I am an apostle. I know that doesn't work. I can't just say, oh, I'm a pastor. Do it my way. We need to make a biblical argument. We need to show what God is doing, what God has done. And that's what he starts doing. He says, look around at the facts and the fruit around you. And then he uses this other command. He says, remember. He says, remember. Uh, If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. You need to remember certain things. That, that God works uh, uh, among many believers. The body of Christ has many members. It's not just about you. You're not the only Christian around here, Paul is saying. Later on, Paul speaks consistent with what he's demanding of them. Did you notice in verse 15 that Paul says this little phrase, we do not boast beyond the limit beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence may be greatly enlarged. He doesn't uh, count himself as the only Christian. I'm not boasting about accomplishments others have made. I'm not infringing. I'm, I don't have to do that. I, I understand there are other Christians at work in the world. You see, part of the problem is that uh, some of the people troubling Corinth may have come there from Jerusalem. They may have come there from Jerusalem and said, you know, uh, we were just in church with uh, the Apostle James and uh, Peter was there. You know, so these are the guys we hang with. And now that we're here in Corinth, you know, Paul, he, he wasn't quite original apostle. So let, let us be your Guy, let us tell you what the real deal is. And we've come all this way from Jerusalem. So you know how well it You know, has Paul come back yet? I know he's changed his plans a lot. So that's the kind of the discord they're sowing. We, we belong to Christ. One of them may even, there's speculation, one of them may even have said something like, I saw Jesus when he was still alive. Or I saw the resurrected Lord. He did appear to over 500 brethren at once. Maybe it's one of those guys who misinterpreted that experience and made much of himself is now going out to, to, to tell the world how great he is. So that's the type of person that might have landed in Corinth. And Paul says, you're not the only Christian around. There's another episode in the Gospels. You'll find it in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus corrects the thinking of his disciples in this very way. 
In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. You would think that's a good thing. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus replied, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Do you remember reading that in the Gospels? I think even as a very young believer, I felt the pinch. Hey, somebody's doing that and they're not on our side. Or are they? Somebody's doing this powerful thing in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not from our church. He's not from our camp, our coterie. Is God at work in other churches? Is God at work in other denominations? Is God at work in a variety of people? Oh, yeah. And the words of Jesus need to be soberly received. Do not stop him. For the one who is not against us is for us. Paul would write to Timothy as Timothy took up pastoring of his own church. The wise Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He said, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. So this sounds very important. Firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God knows his people. You're not the only one. So remember, look, remember, and then there's a third command here as Paul gives rational and spiritual correction. He says, understand, understand. It's used a couple of times. Did we see it here? Uh, For instance, in verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we will do in present. You know, those people that are comparing themselves, they are without understanding. So there's a problem here in their thinking. They don't realize how dangerous they are. And that's part of the danger. They think they're a super Christian. They think they're better than other Christians. They have problems with the ministries of others. So they set themselves up to point fingers, put others down. And Paul says they're not getting it. There's a measure of not understanding. Here in verse 11 in particular, what are they not understanding? They're not understanding apostolic authority, and they're not understanding that the word of God is unchanging. God's word will judge us all. God's word, when it warns, is clear. It's not crying wolf. God's word, when it promises that Christ will return and everyone will give account for every idle word, Or when Jesus said his exclusive claims, not not my preacher talk, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. All that the Bible says is true and will be the determinant of our eternity. Will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Here, Paul is responding to this church, trying to bring a corrective. He's asserting there's a consistency in his ministry. But even more so, he's laying the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the word of God, which we now build upon. 
We can't change that. We shouldn't calculate that the consequences won't come our way. You know, earlier in the chapter, do you remember what Paul said in verse 2 about his uh, possible coming to them? Let me pull it up. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Um, Don't misjudge the scriptures. Don't misjudge apostolic authority. Don't doubt the Bible. Those are important correctives for us that we need to understand. And and I want to end, too. Paul doesn't just correct, but he, he opens the window wider. And he puts a spotlight on something, even in this time of correcting those that are dangerous people in Corinth. And he would direct our vision to these things. He says, behold the work of the Lord. He doesn't just say, oh, no, check out my resume. Remember, I'm an apostle. Get in line. Paul would be so uncomfortable saying anything like that. Instead, he points to Christ. The living Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the work of the Lord. Let us see and acknowledge these things, even as Paul points them out to the church. In verse 8, Paul had said something. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. He wrote strong letters. He's not going to change them. But his goal isn't to frighten them, but to inform them. And he said later on um, that uh, we will not boast. What's the verse? Um, Verse 14. We are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Verse 14. The Lord had given Paul the assignment to go and build them up in verse 8. And construction means you have to round off some of the corners and sand and polish and install and fit. But then here in verse 14b, he explicitly states, we were the first to come. So as we say, behold the work of the Lord, I would say here, behold the Lord gave someone to introduce you to Christ and build you up in Christ. Again, this isn't the history lesson. Back to you. If you're a professing Christian, who first told you about the gospel? Was it your mother? Was it a Sunday school teacher? Did you read a tract or book in college that said, huh, I shouldn't write off Christianity because of the poor behavior of Christians. I should look at the gospel. I know someone who was, whose conversion was, was, uh, found that book to be a catalyst. Who did the Lord give to you to bring you to Christ? It should be humbling to us and it should build a thankful spirit within us. It's his divine work. He planned and executed it long before your conversion that someone would speak or share or open the book or put it in your proximity. Can you trace out how you came to know Christ? That's the work of the Lord. We acknowledge that. Paul, in a sense, is saying that to the Corinthians. 
I know you guys can put me down and you don't think much of me, but I brought the gospel to you. What great service that was. And let me pause here and say, if you're not yet a Christian, whether you're watching at home or present in this room, if you're just not sure that you're born again, you don't know your heart and it's not clear, the Lord has brought me to you today. And he's brought you to this moment to hear the following words. The Lord God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. There is salvation found in no other name than the name of Jesus. Our hymn writers help us too, don't they? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And there's so much more I could tell you. Other Christians could tell you that you might know that you have eternal life. In John's letters, 1 John 5, I think it's verses 11 and 12, he says, these things are written that you might know that you have life. He who has Christ, he who has Jesus has life. He who has the Son has life. And you can know today, without a doubt, What an amazing privilege to tell you those words. Go and do likewise, my friends. Tell someone else that they can be right with God, not by cleaning up their lives, but by coming to Christ and and, and, and receiving by his grace a salvation so rich and free, to be robed in the righteousness of Christ, to have God look on us and not see our sin, but see our Savior, the one who died me. Behold the work of the Lord, as Paul writes here, he does make a very important point. He says the Lord's servants have various ministry styles and assignments. That's a long heading. The Lord's servants come in a lot of shapes and sizes. They have differing assignments. Yeah, I'm using that word very intentionally here. What's your assignment? Aren't we usually held accountable for what we're assigned? Oh, that's not my job, but this is my job. And we do well to pay attention to what the Lord has given us to focus on and avoid pursuing things that are not our assignments. Verse 12, Paul's saying, I'm not going to play the comparison game. Why not? Paul, you've got more trump cards in your deck, man. You could throw that out and trump everything they're doing. And he he does have to mention that. We'll go on later and hear Paul defend his apostleship. But he says, I'm not going to play the comparison game. And here in verse 13 and verse 15, there's a Greek word that I think it's important to know about. There is this word limits in the ESV. I forgot to check the other English translations. In the ESV, it begins, we will not boast beyond limits. 
And again in verse 15, we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. What is Paul talking about? You might think in terms of allotment. Um, the Greek word sounds like the word canon, canon, and it's used a few times in the Bible. And Paul's making reference to that. What did it mean in Greek culture? Well, originally, I'm not saying it's all that Paul means here. Originally, it meant a carefully specified area in which local communities, seriously, local communities had to provide donkeys and carts as transportation for Roman officials passing through. So when the Roman official gets to your town, as soon as he passes that corner, comes by the river, your town better be able to transport him and his stuff. So they had an assigned uh, borough, an allotment, uh, uh, a bailiwick, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an area of responsibility. And Paul brings that up because he knows what his assignment is. His assignment isn't to compare himself to someone else. Even if some guy from Jerusalem showed up, that's not a big deal to him. Do you remember Paul and his conversion story in Acts 26? If you don't know it, this would make great reading this this Sunday afternoon. How did the Lord bring about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a graduate student under Gamaliel, to become Paul the Apostle? So here in Acts 26, we'll just take a brief section of it, beginning in verse 14. Paul describes... What happened after uh, uh, he had fallen to the ground? And when we'd all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. Here we go. To appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The Lord Jesus personally said, Paul, you're going to the Gentiles. Places like Corinth. Corinth? I don't know if we would, what we'd think of a church planter who said, you know, I'm going to plant a church in Hollywood. I'm going to plant a church on the French Riviera. I'm going to plant a, a, a church, you know, and fill in the blank. We know the challenges a gospel preacher would face. But God says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Paul knew about that commission and explained it further when he wrote to the uh, Galatians. Do you remember his letter to the Galatians? He did have to become very assertive. Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 11, he describes his calling, his assignment, his limit, his designated role. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he, he talks about the, his assignment to go to these Gentiles. And that was Paul's ministry. If we remember the early church history, not to dwell on it, Peter was to remain in Jerusalem and work with the Jews. And it was Peter's vision that helped Jewish Christians get past the kosher food laws and many other things. Different assignments, different personalities at work in the ministries. And and that's part of what Paul's highlighting here. I know what God's calling me to do and to be. And Paul was faithful. Do you know what God's calling you to do and to be? Has God put you in a difficult place to try to make a difference? Oh, yeah, other Christians don't have the same challenges you have. But as the Lord said to those prophets when he called them, who made your mouth? Don't tell me what you're capable of. I made your mouth. I made you new in Christ. I want to deploy you with your particular skills. I want to use you with your particular strengths and weaknesses. So here the point is the Lord's servants are various in their ministry styles and assignments. We need to understand that. There's a great variety among God's people. Finally, the Lord will judge who is approved. That's what we need to see, the Lord's work. It's not our work to do those uh, major points of judgment, but the Lord will judge. Someone said Paul finds the entirety of his identity in the Lord's approval and commendation, as he says in verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said a few things about those who build and how they will be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He doesn't write to the Corinthians, say, test each other out by fire. He says, no, the Lord's going to approve and judge. Later on in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, he says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, for the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says the same thing as verse 18 here. And we are so obsessed with putting the right label on those people. And when that label's on, they're dangerous, and we write them off. We need to be discerning. We need to have good and straight orthodox doctrine. But the word of God goes to pains to remind people in the pew that God will judge who's approved. God will weigh those works in the end. So in closing, let me just tell you three things. Trust the Lord to acknowledge you. Other people may be pressuring you or pushing you. Understand that you belong to him and to him you will give an account. 
Secondly, pray for larger kingdom work to go forward. Pray for larger kingdom work to go forward. That was here in verses 15 and 16. Paul's writing not to to just win the battle with them. He says, hey, come on, guys. When you realize I'm trying to help you here and you're growing, I'll be able to move on. And, And we know from other parts of the Bible that Paul's desire was to get all the way to Spain. And if you know the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, and Corinth is about halfway, Spain was pretty far off. He longed to fulfill his mission to the Gentiles and go where Christ had not yet been named. That's a great reminder that, especially when we're in conflict and dealing with assessments and comparisons and trying to to not have uh, inappropriate uh, behaviors in ourselves or in others, we need to constantly see that there's work to be done. Pray for larger kingdom work to go forward. And finally, as the scripture makes so clear here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. I'm so thankful that as a headstrong young convert, my first year of college, there was an older man, I think he was a senior. Dan was a senior, I think, when I was a freshman. New convert, you know, you show up all zealous. He was a patient mentor. And he's still in ministry. He's, he's uh, a couple years ahead of me. And even uh, Dan would answer a lot of my questions by opening the Bible. He was a good mentor. And when he went away to seminary, this was the days before email, he would write letters, you know, physical paper letters to Dave Bissett. And he would always sign with a scripture verse at the bottom. And you can bet I learned that verse. He didn't have to write out the verse, just the reference. Jeremiah 9. In those words... I can still see his handwriting as I remember that verse. The ESV version of it says this. Thus says the Lord Jehovah. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. The Lord, who practices hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love, justice, righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. May we all be guided by those words, by the word of God, with the help of the spirit of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we continually thank you for your word, which brings such great light to our world and and light even to the dark recesses of our own hearts. And Father, some of us are squirming because we know we've been judgmental or we've used those voices we shouldn't use. Oh, Father, may there be forgiveness and help for us as we make progress in serving you and walking alongside other believers. Father, forbid it that we should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.